Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Ed Williams and I chair the Aspen Institute in the UK. I'm standing in for Penny Richards, our Executive Director. I first want to thank you for joining this special Aspen UK webinar on Ukraine. I feel particularly privileged to introduce today's session given the extraordinary level of talent we're gonna hear from on our panel, and moreover, the scale of the challenges that they will be discussing. This is gonna be a very humbling session for all of us listening in. Now, this is the second public webinar we've held on Ukraine post the Russian invasion and war. Having considered how the war will reshape Europe with contributions from policy, uh, foreign policy experts, today's session will hear directly from some of the country's most dynamic young leaders about how they see the future of Ukraine. I'm thrilled by the caliber of today's speakers, and I'm very grateful actually that author, journalist, and broadcaster Paul Mason will moderate the session. I'll leave it to Paul to introduce the speakers. Now, it's important to say that the Aspen Institute doesn't come to the events in Ukraine fresh. We have a deep and rich history in Ukraine through the programming and public engagement of the Aspen Institute in Kyiv, which was launched in 2015, and through Aspen's leadership in the country, notably our executive director, Yulia Tichkivska, and chairperson, Natalie Karescu. In fact, and if I may, Paul, I want to lead into today's session quoting Yulia, our director in Aspen, directly. This war is not just about Ukraine, she said recently. We're not fighting just for Ukrainian independence. We're fighting for European peace and we're fighting for world freedom. It's not just about our country. It's about good democratic values. We are not afraid. Now, I've no doubt that that sense of resilience and focus that Yulia expresses in the face of aggression, violence and, well, frankly, atrocities, the likes of which we haven't seen in Europe for decades, that that sense of resilience and focus will come through loud and clear today. Now, today's session reflects Aspen UK's focus on providing a platform for young leaders. This is at the heart of our mission in the UK, and it's an area that in due course we're going to be talking about more. But I want to keep my powder dry on that, and I want to hand over now to Paul, who's going to introduce the panel. Paul, over to you. Thank you for that. Uh, So, yes, my name is Paul Mason. I am a journalist, uh, writer, filmmaker. I was in uh, Kiev Uh, on a solidarity delegation of British politicians um, right up until 24 hours before um, the war began. Um, And I don't think there's a day gone by since then when I haven't um, written something, uh, done something like a demonstration or a picket or or engaged with my Ukrainian friends and colleagues um, direct to try and just do what we can, as all of us, do what we can to... Uh, bring this conflict to an end and to defeat the totalitarian aggression that is um, that that is menacing the young people we're about to speak to. So just some housekeeping. If you have a question, use the Q&A button, <clears throat> because if you've been doing uh, a lot of Zoom, you will know that the chat button gets a little bit crazy. We're not monitoring the chat. We're only monitoring the, the Q&A. So please put your questions like uh, through that. The format is for about 
35 minutes. I will host a discussion with our four panelists who I'm about to introduce. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, after that, we'll take some of your questions. I'll throw them at the panelists and then we'll wrap up just before six. So without further ado, the panelists tonight are Olya Kudinenko, who is the founder and chair of the board of Tabletochi Foundation, a charity helping Ukrainian children to fight oncological diseases. We have Yegor Lanovenko. Yegor is the founder and chairman of Opora, a charity helping Ukrainians fleeing the war to rebuild their lives. Olena Sotnik is a politician, a lawyer and human rights defender, policy advisor to the, the Ukrainian cabinet and was a member of parliament from 2014 to 2019. And Olga Tokaryuk is a non-resident fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis and an independent journalist and researcher based in Kiev. And all those biographies, as I'm sure you'll realise, uh, do very little justice to the level of talent, commitment and energy that, um, that we are bringing uh, from this panel to the problem. So I'm going to go to a question. Uh, that's a question that I think many people wrapped up in this are not asking. Um, in 1940, when uh, bombs were falling on London, when uh, the American uh, Pacific Fleet was sitting at the bottom of Pearl Harbor, John Maynard Keynes, the economist, and his counterpart, Harry Dexter White uh, in America, began a long range conversation on this question. What does the world look like when we win? Uh, and it's a strange question to be asking when you're seeing uh, your country uh, and, and indeed, uh, a country on the front line of um, of Europe, uh, to be honest, against totalitarianism being bombed uh, with all the atrocities that are taking place. I'm wondering if I can throw that question at our panel. What will the world look like if this conflict can come to a conclusion with Ukraine prevailing and, and its Western allies? And what would prevailing look like? I wonder whether Olena, who is the politician on the panel, would have any answers to that. So, uh, hello everyone, and thank you for having me. Uh, I would say that uh, there is no, uh, you know, uh, simple answer to this question, of course. Uh, and when we are talking about uh, prevailing, we are talking that Ukraine uh, in the future defeat Putin. That's the main question, and that, that's the only one and positive scenario for the whole world. And uh, uh, just uh, the director of Aspen Institute in the United Kingdom uh, quoted uh, uh, Tichkivska, who is uh, Ukrainian, and she said that it is a war for values and uh, principles and democracy. I think it, it's not just about that. Uh, because uh, uh, it is more even about to stop evil, because we've been feeding evil for many years and we let him go out. And that's the main question. If we could stop him and put him uh, and, uh, back in, um, to the bottle, you know, to, to his borders. Why is it so important? Because this war is not just about Ukraine. Yes, uh, Ukraine, uh, like Russians, they want to destroy Ukraine as a nation because we are uh, mainly, for them, we are uh, definitely threat uh, because we are the only one nation after uh, Soviet Union collapsed, which still have uh, a lot of uh, uh, opportunities to build prosperity, democratic society, which would be the threat for the regime, definitely. But at the same time, 
when Putin started this war, it wasn't just Ukraine. It was about Europe and it was about the world order. And that's the main question. If we want to uh, like protect this world order, if we want to continue uh, somehow the stability which we could succeed after the Second World War, those millions of deaths, we need to stop him now in Ukraine and not uh, to give him any opportunity to go further. That's why uh, if we are talking about defeating, we are talking about prevailing world, uh, this world order which exists over the possible world order where the evil would command. This is my answer for this question. Thank you for, for that, Olena. Uh, Yegor, I'm wondering if I could bring you in on that issue. What, what does it look like if, if Ukraine prevails? Sure, Paul, and um, thanks. Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Humbling to be in this company, so thank you. Um, I think from, from the perspective of what I've been working on with the Apora team and many others have been working on, which is the, you know, how we address and support the, the refugee crisis that's prevailing, I think regardless of when this conflict comes to an end and the outcome, I think we'll be left with a completely transformational event, right, that has occurred in terms of the, 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 the geopolitics and the demographics of, of not only Europe, but the world, right? If you think about four and a half million uh, Ukrainians have already fled, according to just the official statistics to date, um, I certainly anticipate and many others anticipate and forecast this be closer to 10 million, right, by the end of the conflict, if not more, depending on how this goes. If you think about those numbers, right, in the last month and a half, um, that is transformational on a scale that uh, Keynes would have not anticipated either in 1940s, if you're thinking about those numbers. So, and we're seeing very different groups and paths and pathways emerge for, for these people to, to resettle. So I think regardless of, of, of when and how this ends, we will be faced with a, a, a transformed uh, demographic of, of Europe and a transformed landscape for Europe economically as well, uh, whether it's people you know, in looking for short, short-term shelter from 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 the the military action that they have fled, or people proactively, you know, accepting the fact that they need to rebuild their lives elsewhere for slightly longer term, um, those decisions have already been made, right, and they are already effectively displaced. So I think that will be one um, consequence that's uh, that's inevitable, and and um, regardless of the outcome. Great, and and Olya, I'm going round in sort of the order I, I I did it, and I'll reverse you, and I might take a few individual questions on people's specialisms. Um, Olya, what do you, what do you think about this issue? I think uh, we are facing the biggest uh, healthcare problem in the country right away because lots of uh, doctors or women fled the country, and uh, lots of nurses fled the country, and for nurses it would be really like easier to find a job. Uh, in European Union than in Ukraine, and uh, we will we, we will be s suffering from the uh, without med uh, medical personnel after the war and during the war, and uh, uh, healthcare system right now is damaged a lot. More than two hundred uh, hospitals were uh, bombed or uh, missiles hit them, and talking about healthcare uh, childhood um, pedi pediatric. Uh, pediatric cancer in Ukraine. Uh, we evacuated almost all patients. That means that uh, uh, Ukrainian doctors don't have practice right now. So they're losing their skills and uh, they, they don't progress in their treatment. So I think we'll, we will face uh, the biggest healthcare um, 
the healthcare problem after the war. And we might come in a minute to what to do about that, but I want to get to take uh, uh, Olga, um, our final panelist, uh, you know, as, as, a, as someone working in the information space, a journalist, an investigator. Um, what's your what's your idea about you know what does it look what does winning look like? Well, I think uh, I definitely hope and uh, I firmly actually not just hope, but I firmly believe in Ukraine's victory. And I think Ukraine's victory over Russia uh, would mean a victory of democracy over authoritarianism. I think this is one of the major battles of the 21st century that we're witnessing now on Ukraine's soil. This is really a fight between uh, democracy and tyranny. And Ukraine's victory in this uh, in this war would mean the victory of all the free and democratic world. You know, China is watching very closely what is happening. China is emerging as a, a biggest like challenger of the democratic world. Uh, Russia is weaker than China, but China is learning from Russian disinformation, from Russian propaganda. So they are kind of reinforcing each other in many ways. But these are both authoritarian countries. So I think the outcome of the war in, in Ukraine will ultimately also decide the outcome of the uh, battle of big powers of democratic and authoritarian powers. So that's one aspect. Then the other aspect, uh, I um, uh, very much hope that Ukraine's victory will mean that Ukraine will finally become a member of the uh, European Union, you know, something that Ukraine really uh, struggled for for many years, something that many Ukrainians were fighting for, especially representatives of my generation who participated in two Maidans in 2004 and 2013 and 2014. So I hope Ukraine's victory will mean that, you know, our children will be uh, growing up in a country that is a, a firm member of a Western democratic world that earned the right to be you know, one, an equal uh, between all the other uh, countries of the, of the democratic world. Uh, and finally, I think uh, Ukraine's victory is only possible if uh, um, Russia makes uh, a homework similar to uh, what uh, Nazi Germany, you know, Germany has done after being defeated in the, in the World War II. Because what is happening now, it is not just Putin's war. This is the war that has been enabled, you know, by, uh, by propaganda. And it is the war that is supported by many Russians. This is a war of an imperial power who doesn't want to, you know, recognize Ukraine's right to exist as a sovereign and independent state. So unless Russia is, uh, uh, you know, makes, uh, somehow comes to terms and, and, and realizes it's, you know, um, and repents this imperialistic attitude that is leading to this uh, brutal war, I think there could be no peace. So the peace is only possible if uh, lessons are learned, if uh, mistakes are not repeated, if the communist also crimes are condemned in Russia, because uh, without the reckoning with the past and with what is happening now, there can be no long lasting peace in Ukraine and in Europe, I think, and Russia will remain a threat. And thank you for that. <clears throat> I wanted to just throw a, a, a second question in, which is um, from to each panelist, from your experience, how what, how is the mood changing among your generation of Ukrainians? When I was in Kiev uh, just before the war started, I was really struck by how westernized, uh, in a loose sense, uh, the, the that young generation, indeed of young adults, had become compared to 10 years before when I was there with the BBC 
just simply in that time, leaving aside all the time from the Soviet era when, you know, when one uh, people my age experienced the immediate aftermath of the Soviet uh, era. <clears throat> What's changed now uh, among those young people? What are their, what, what, what can you bring to us of concrete experience uh, from the discussions with them? Maybe I could start with you, Olga, um, uh, just to come back on that. Yes, well, as I mentioned, you know, Ukraine has been independent for 30 years and a, a generation has come of, uh, of age in Ukraine of people who were born or, you know, who were maybe were born still in the USSR, but they were raised, they grew up in independent Ukraine and they learned to appreciate what uh, independence and freedom and democracy means. This is something that, you know, maybe was not a given for our generation. And I'm speaking about like 30 somethings like me, like middle, mid 30s. So I was born in, in, still in the Soviet Union, but I remember going to a referendum with my parents and uh, my parents voted for Ukraine's independence. I was six at the time. Of course, I didn't realize how important it was. But then, you know, as a journalist, as a citizen, I, I participated in two revolutions. I covered them as a journalist. And somehow uh, I think uh, my example is something a lot of Ukrainians can relate to, you know, that in the process of like growing up, we realized how important democracy is. And this, that this is also not a given. This is something worth fighting for because it really is, uh, uh, you know, it's a privilege. It's a privilege, not a given for us in Ukraine to, to have a, a free a democratic country with free media, with free elections, with, a, a, you know, a right to protest. This is something that is not existent in, in Russia, in Belarus, in many, you know, other uh, former uh, post uh, former Soviet states. And this is actually also our fight now because Russia uh, uh, wants Ukraine to be, you know, something like little Russia, uh, another country where there is no democracy. It sees a democracy in Ukraine as a threat, as an existential threat to, to a kleptocratic regime in Russia, to Putin's regime. So, uh, uh, you know, like this generation of Ukrainians uh, who grew up in an independent country, they, they came to appreciate how important it, it is. And they also sacrificed their lives and they're continuing to sacrifice their lives to preserve this free, independent and democratic state. And, and, and that's, you know, something that really defines, I think, young Ukrainians now. And, and, and many of them, especially, of course, um, realized how important it is since 2014, since Russia first invaded, because we shouldn't forget that this war has not started on February 24th, 2022. Mm -hmm. It started back in uh, February 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and, uh, you know, the war in Donbass. I'm thinking that... <clears throat> We're not talking about the exact location of individuals on this panel right now, but I'm thinking that many of you will have had contact with Western European and American people your age. What do you say to them when that counter narrative comes at you? This is all about this is all about NATO. This is all about um, the you know the kind of <clears throat> power games between great powers. It's all been staged. What well, you must understand that there's a big counter narrative in in the in the Western uh, media uh, pushed as as we know by by the Kremlin. What does anybody have anything a, a killer argument, a killer fact that they're using when they meet their Western peers who are just not keen on this? And some of them, let's face it. Even people who can see the case for Ukraine are saying, look, you know, it's a long way away. I don't want to die in a nuclear war. Please get this over with. Go, you know, so, you know go to a peace conference and, and do what you need to. What do you say to them? Maybe, Maybe. Olena. Or Yego, Yego, go on. 
No, I just wanted to, to, to jump in. I think for as long as I can remember, I think Ukrainian identity, even within Ukraine, has always been anchored to something else. You know, I was just thinking about it when Olga was thinking about it, you were talking, and it's uh, either been, you know, the, the Russian East or the, the Western, um, the, the Western, the, the Westernized, you know, West of Ukraine or NATO, EU, Cyrus, Russia, USSR, Kievan Rus, whatever it is, for as long as you can remember, there's always been this dynamic of, you know, of, of being subservient or subject to something else and being a pawn in a greater design. And I think if ever there was a moment, right, where Ukrainian identity has not only been forged, but proven. I think it has happened over the last month and a half. And I think it has been demonstrated right, to anyone through uh, proving every single analyst's expectations of how this war would go and how this offensive would go. So I think if there was ever, ever a need for a display of proof of that, it is here. And it is also seen ultimately more outside of the Ukraine, including people like myself, who has been based outside of the Ukraine for, for a long time. right? And before the war started, I am not ashamed to say that I could count my Ukrainian network, um, you know, on a one hand or two hands in, in where I'm based. But what I can say that since this has happened, right, my Ukrainian network and people I have met and people working is, is thousands upon thousands, right? And it has happened and it is very real and it is not going to go away because we have seen that identity be, if not forged then reconfirmed and made very public to the world. Alina, I know you're keen to talk about this issue of the of the, the Kremlin narrative. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, it, it, it would be very interesting for me to answer because, you know, uh, during my uh, political career, I used to be the leader of youth wing of my political party. That's why I've been working a lot with uh, Ukrainian uh, young leaders. And uh, I think that Ukrainian parliament now and previous convocation was, was one of the youngest and uh, the middle age of this parliament is like something like 40, you know. That's why I think that's absolutely unprecedented role of new generation in the future of Ukraine. That's why the attitude is so different. And I would, by the way, argue that uh, uh, we've been like really understand that understood in the previous, uh, I mean, in the, in the past, the price of this independence. I think from the very beginning in 90, 90s, we've been taking uh, independence for granted because it was like collapse of Soviet Union and we so easy got like this independence. But only uh, after the uh, first revolution, I mean, orange revolution, when we've been fighting for the first time with absolutely two different paradigmas, democratic one and uh, like pro-Russian one. And uh, then during a uh, revolution of dignity, it was even a worse situation when we had to fight, but at the same time, we like paid price for this. So many people died. Then it was annexation of Crimea. It was also price for the independence. Then it was Donbass, one more uh, like big price, the Baltseva and um, uh, many of this uh, war, uh, uh, like war crimes during that uh, period of time. We lost a lot of uh, people. We lost uh, like uh, at that time, we lost control over territories and we're still losing people, you know? So we just... Uh, day after day, year after year, we're paying huge price for the freedom. And that's why I think uh, uh, this is the main uh, uh, like meaning of uh, Ukrainian fight. 
we just demonstrating uh, to the whole world, especially civilized, which used to stability and which is taken for granted many things like democracy, uh, you know, uh, some social guarantees, some stability. Uh, uh, yeah, like many European countries, they are taking them for granted. And it's not like this. The yeah. stability is, you know, very uh, uh, like unstable in, in reality, because that's what is happening with the Ukrainian war. It's not about Ukraine. The case is like it started earlier, Syria, Georgia, Moldova, now Ukraine, we, uh, we saw the threats uh, towards Finland, we saw threats towards uh, uh, Sweden and other countries. It means that there is no security place now from the destabilization and from this bad guys club, I would say. Okay. And, and, and Olya, can I bring you in uh, to, to speak about this? Yeah, I would like to say in uh, particular examples, if you look to our Forbes list, like 100 the most richest people in the in Ukraine, you will see. I will I would say one of the third of the list would be people who are in this in their 30s, and people of their 30s they want to stay in Ukraine and to open worldwide uh, companies, work all over the world, but their head offices are ba were based in Ukraine. And uh, what I see from my charity work that many people, much, much more than it was 10 years ago, they want to be responsible for what's happening in Ukraine. And they don't uh, give all problems to the, uh, to the parliament and to the government as it's in Russia, for example. They want to be responsible for what's happening in country and in their people, with their people. And... Uh, like, I think that number 25 in our Forbes list is uh, Alexander Konotopsky, who, who, who is number one entrepreneur in Ukraine, and he's only 30, 34, which is uh, not really popular in Western world right now. And what I see, and when I talk with my colleagues from USA or UK, the average age of donors in Ukraine are like 30 years younger we started to donate and to support charities in our late 20s, like 26, 27, 28. We start to support charities on a regular basis. And if you see USA, for example, donor, you will find out that uh, their average donation starting age is up to their 50s. So uh, that's the main difference. Ukraine is a young country and many, many people are in their youth right now. And of course, we are currently in a state of emergency. We're in a state of war. Um, some of the some political freedoms and civil freedoms are, are constrained. What would each of the panelists say, just very briefly, is important for the Ukrainian government to do to make sure that this civil society, which has emerged in post-Soviet uh, era, which, as you say, does not, you know, I mean, uh, the the author Masha Gessen. Uh, wrote an essay, the Russian author, Masha Gessen, wrote an essay last, last week saying that Russian society has become totalitarian, not just the government, that there is a, there is a, a, a widespread acceptance of this absence of civil society space. What can Ukraine do to make sure as we rebuild, as people return, that that, that civil society space can grow and flourish? I don't know whether, whether um, any of you've got any ideas 
I would like to start right now. We are working um, uh, right now. We are working on two directions. First one is humanitarian relief that people need right now, but also we are talking with our um, international donors about development aid because when the war will be finished, we need to do development work. For example, to rebuild hospitals, and we need to start do this exactly when the war will be finished. So people will see the future is coming, and the future is not like ruined, the future is not ruined. So um, that's that's what we're doing. And we're thinking about development aid even more than about humanitarian relief because humanitarian relief is what happened already. And development, what we, development aid, what we will do when the, the war will be finished. Yeah, and I would say that a big part of the development aid is the part process of redevelopment and rebuilding is, you know, encouraging a lot of the people back, right? And, and how do you get people back, right? And as we're seeing, as Olya said, um, you know, clearly doctors, nurses, that's an immediate already acute gap. And if you think beyond that, it's the, 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 the feared brain drain of, of a lot of other skills. What I would say, though, is from, from the people who are looking to um, rebuild their lives in a, in a more long term elsewhere and resettle elsewhere, we're seeing a great demand to continue working for many and for many of the Ukrainian employers. It's a really interesting shift in the demographic, as Oli was saying. This, there's people saying that one of the most popular questions we're getting about the UK is, "What tax do I have to pay if I continue working remotely for a Ukrainian employer?" And that's that's a fantastic question, right? That you would that you would expect. And I think we, if 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 I was to say, what could the state do? I think we need to not fear the brain drain, right, in terms of long term, but rather engage with, with the diaspora that is emerging through this resettlement to ensure that we don't lose track of these people, right? And we form that online and virtual community and we, we don't, uh, you know, they don't have, end up dispersed and isolated, right? So that's, I, I feel that's, that's the way to... to Elena, you're, you're, you're shaking your head. No, no, I, I want people to come back and I want to come back and uh, I think that the main case, how we rebuild country in a way that we will build better system, better cities, you know, better Ukraine than we used to have before. Uh, there is a challenge. We lost, the, like the whole city has been destroyed. Kharkiv, Mariupol, Kherson, look at, at, at Valnavakhat, so Bucha, Irpin, like many of them. What do we need to do? We, we don't need to come back to the past. We need to jump to the future, to use the innovations, uh, to use know-how, to use um, like all the energy, what we have after uh, this fight, in order you know, to encourage people to come back. Of course, we would need a lot of money. That's true. It's, uh, we should be open, honest, it's like, even hundreds of billions of dollars to rebuild everything. But my main solution is, of course, people. I want them to come back. I want them to have this uh, light in, in the end of the tunnel. This better Ukraine, even better than we had before. Can I come to Olga to ask a different question before we throw this open to the audience? We've got some questions already. Olga, just specifically about you know disinformation. Um, I mean, it's, it will be interesting to hear what, how within Ukrainian society and the Ukrainian uh, inf information space, uh, counter disinformation is happening. But I'm really interested in your view as, as a journalist and as, as a scholar of this, of, of what, what is the number one thing we, you want people to take away from this? 
internationally. There's an international audience for this. What do we need to be doing to counter this you know, deluge of lies, disinformation, um, and, and pure propaganda coming from, from the Kremlin? Well, uh, the, my advice number one would be um, always assume that Russian officials are lying because in 99.9% of cases, they do. You know, they've been uh, saying repeatedly that they are not going to invade Ukraine, and in indeed, they invaded Ukraine. Uh, they've been denying all the war crimes that ha they have been committing in Ukraine, but we're already having you know, a huge number of evidence and independent journalists and media from all over the world working in, uh, you know, the cities that have been liberated by the Ukrainian army who are collecting this evidence. Uh, and recently, just a Kremlin spokesman, Peskov, was uh, on uh, Sky News and he was caught in a very good, you know, it was a really nice episode of the interview when he was like caught, like lying again, when he was denying that it was a Russian tank who was uh, shooting at a civilian man in Bucha, but then uh, he he was, you know, presented with the video that the tank had a V letter on it, and which is a, a mark, of course, that Russian occupying forces are uh, putting on their military vehicles. Uh, so, um, but, you know, uh, leaving that aside, uh, what is important, of course, is the work of journalists. You know, in this post-truth era that we are living in, I think the work of journalists is ever more important. And of course, journalists who are on the ground and working on the ground in Ukraine and this, covering this war has been especially dangerous and extremely dangerous for journalists. Uh, uh, I, you know, I don't know that what is the exact number now uh, of journalists who have been killed in Ukraine because this number is uh, varies uh, depending on the source. But up to 10 uh, journalists have already be been killed in Ukraine. And most of them were killed deliberately by uh, Russian soldiers. Uh, most of these journalists, they were wearing, you know, uh, recognition marks. They were marked as press. They were wearing protective gear and still they were targeted. They were deliberately targeted by Russian forces who want to prevent the world from knowing what is happening, who want to prevent the world from knowing about their war crimes. Uh, and, and despite that, you know, this is clearly an intimidation tactic uh, aimed at, you know, preventing journalists from speaking the truth, from being here on the ground in Ukraine. Despite uh, Despite that, uh, so many courageous journalists are on the ground in Ukraine. My Ukrainian colleagues, uh, some of my Ukrainian colleagues have also been killed in this war. I just want to mention one name, Max Levin, a, a photographer renowned, uh, one of the best Ukrainian photographers who was killed by uh, Russian soldiers in the outskirts of Kyiv. Last month, uh, you know, he had four children. He was a brilliant professional and I was uh, honored to have worked with him at Hromatsky. So, uh, you know, this, despite that, uh, despite these huge risks for their lives, journalists are continuing working in Ukraine and their work is uh, super important. And, and you know, uh, um, another advice would be like trust people who have been in Ukraine, who have knowledge of Ukraine. I don't know, like, you know, whether it's very relevant in the UK. I think the information space in the UK is relatively okay and the coverage of this war is okay compared to other European countries I'm following for example what is happening in the Italian information space and it's it's a mess I, I have to say because there are so many so-called experts and pundits on TV who have never set foot to Ukraine who do not speak either Ukrainian or Russian and who are spreading all sorts of conspiracy theories and all sorts of you know apologies for uh, Putin's actions for Russian soldiers actions in Ukraine and the media keep inviting this experts 
experts because they make a good show, you know, because the ratings are growing and the yeah. audience is entertained. But the truth is what is suffering because yeah. and not every two points of view are equal. If one point of view is based on fact, on facts and on expertise, it is not equal to a point of view that is based on a lack of expertise on, you know, conspiracies and other things. So yeah. I would just encourage the audience and the public, of course, to be to think critically, to look at the background, to and to trust, of course, those who are on the ground. There's a saying in journalism that if, if one guy says it's raining outside and another guy says it's dry, your job as a journalist is to step out the door and look in the sky and see what it is. Um, that's exactly. one thing. Not to give a microphone to both of them. Be a Absolutely. moderator also, not just, not just someone who holds the microphone. And I, I would also say, as someone who is covering this, and, and is, is a, I'm a partisan journalist, I'm standing with Ukraine. I was on a demonstration yesterday uh, with the Ukrainian colleagues. Um, I would say to everybody, do not assume that, that most things that happen to you are an accident or a coincidence. Every attack, every lie, every targeted, every time one is targeted, I have learned in a long career that that's someone is doing it. Uh, and I think that's it's a very hard thing to get your head around without becoming a conspiracy theorist. It is so much of the country disinformation is is being planned and being coordinated. So we need to remember that. Um, I, I know Yego wants to come back on the question of the diaspora. But if you'll forgive me, I, I, would, I might come back to it a bit later. I do because I do want to jump into some of the questions that our audience have been putting to us. Um, and one asks. Do you think Putin will be brought to trial for the atrocities committed in Bucha and elsewhere? How do you conduct an international criminal trial when Russia is conducting this war under the pretense of an alternate reality? And one would add when, uh, for example, the, the Americans aren't even signed up to the ICC. We've got the ICC and ICJ. I wonder whether anybody on the panel can answer that. What, what is the chance of, of bringing Putin to justice? Yes, uh, Olena. Of course, I can answer because uh, I, I'm, I'm working hardly with all my colleagues to uh, set up special tribunal because the main problem with Putin and high level authorities, it, it is about their immunity. And of course, in uh, ICC, it is impo impossible to do, but it is possible from the legal point of view, from international point of view, to uh, establish a special tribunal, first of all. And the second one, it is very important that uh, the countries which still respect international order, international law, would support this idea. Because I know that many countries, they are trying to be careful because it is a nuclear weapon, because, because it is a nuclear threat and many other things. The case is that I'm not expecting like that uh, we are going like uh, to uh, put him into the jail immediately. The main case that even I can uh, imagine, I can imagine that we would need to have uh, you know, like uh, uh, to, to have the court in absentia when he is not present in the court. But it is very important to bring him into justice to show to the whole world the evidences. And then uh, if you are going to put him under the justice, the matter of impunity that somebody can commit the same crimes, war crimes, would be uh, uh, at least somehow resolved. That's why uh, it is possible. 
the international community should work on this. It is uh, realistic, absolutely realistic. Of course, it would need a lot of efforts. Ukraine uh, are gathering all the evidences. We are collecting this evidences appropriately. We are involving other international institutions to do this. And we encourage uh, our foreign partners to participate and to help us to set up this special tribunal. Anybody else on that? If not, I'll just put another one that I think is um, just a very general one. Is the Ukrainian government, and I would then say, you know, is anybody in Ukraine working? I'm sorry, is 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 Ukrainian government working on a plan to rebuild? I know it's early to, to do that, but that's one what what people are asking. <laughs> yeah, sorry, one more time that I am a little bit monopolizing, but uh, uh, I have information from the ground. Uh, from the ground. Yes, we are working. Uh, so uh, now there is a special task force, special group being set up by the uh, Prime Minister, and we already uh, received uh, proposals from many ministries. But I think it is very important not just to involve the government, but it is very important to involve business, to involve uh, citizens and to involve foreign community, because it would be very difficult just to rebuild from the uh, economic point of view or from, uh, you know, material point of view. The, I think the main challenge, it is about uh, survivors and uh, about victims. Mm -hmm. It would be very difficult uh, challenge because we are going to come back to Ukraine absolutely different people. And those who stayed in Ukraine and been fighting or suffering, they also have a lot of traumas. So Ukraine would need a, a special treatment uh, special programs for survivors and for victims, and we would need all the help of uh, international experience and community, of course. But yes, we are working on this. It is there, and soon I hope we could involve also our foreign partners in order to finish it and to finalize. And, and Diego, somebody's asked in the Q&A, the diaspora has always been very involved in Ukraine's institutions and government. Do you expect to see the diaspora, who maybe haven't lived in Ukraine for many years, go back and take part? And in what form would they do that? Um, how should they do that? I, I, I think so. And I would certainly anticipate that. And that goes back to what um, Elena was saying. I think the answer to rebuilding is not just financial, it's clearly people. And my only point is that we should not, we should avoid demonizing those who are making a temporary or whatever long-term personal decision to try and rebuild their life elsewhere because the experience that everybody is going to come back a changed person through this experience not just people who stayed in ukraine right and 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 the the learnings and the experience of a completely different culture and way of life potentially uh, will be invaluable right what what has been gleaned through whether it's a month in in, in poland or two years in the uk um that that is one of the biggest opportunities that we have to bring back talent, new skills, new experience, new institutions, and effectively facilitate the rebuilding of democracy. So my only um, point on the diaspora is that we're going to see a completely new generation um, join that international community, not just who are staying in the Ukraine, but likewise uh, abroad. Uh, and I, as, as I've certainly put from my personal experience, you know, we're seeing an outpouring of engagement already and people are working on long-term rebuilding, plan, rebuilding plans, not just, you know, not just at government levels, but at personal levels, right? They're considering what, 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 what 
from personal donations and where do I donate to the specific rebuilding fund to how could I help rebuilding through my business or others. So I think that's we're going to see an absolute outpouring of that community and we, we shouldn't lose this opportunity um, to leverage this currently what we call refugee network, which will soon become a diaspora network uh, very quickly. Olya, what about you? How does that affect what you are trying to do with your charity? Well, I'll tell. Uh, we we built for ten years our charity inside Ukraine with Ukrainian donors who were based in Ukraine. So literally, when the war has started, all our opportunities in Ukraine were decreasing significantly. Uh, like we had more than two hundred thousand dollars donations per month with the regular subscriptions from Ukrainian donors. And Ukrainian business are suffering. Ukrainians are losing their jobs. So uh, right now we are trying to rebuild our charity and we are rebuilding it uh, for international fundraising to attract international money to support, as I told already, humanitarian relief right now and uh, development aid later. However, I think that it will be crucial for us um, to continue to talk about our needs in Ukraine. So Ukrainians will be used to them and will continue to support and would be ready to take the responsibility of our infrastructural projects in the future, because um, that's what we need to do to be a um, democratic society. Olga, I want to come to you on a different question that somebody's asked, and it's, it's basically, uh, let me find it. How do we protect and advance human rights in, during the conflict in Ukraine and in the post-conflict Ukraine, how do we make 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 sure that that you know when in a traumatized society and and in an inevitably militarized society, what happens to 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 journalism? What happens to civil to human rights defenders? I mean, when I was in Kiev, we 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 met loads of human rights defenders who've been working with victims from Donbass over the last eight years. They now have, many of them have fled. Um, but what, how do we rebuild that? And how do we rebuild a, a kind of a, a, a society that is um, that still wants to see difference, that still wants to see open argument, criticism of the government, etc.? Well, uh, I think, uh, of course, it will very um, will very much depend on the outcome of this war yeah. and, you know, the post-war settlement, uh, how like how it will be like all organized. Uh, but I think Ukrainians have demonstrated repeatedly that they value, uh, you know, dem democratic values and that they value diversity, diversity of opinions, diversity of, uh, you know, in, in the media landscape, in the political scene. So um, I'm sure, you know, it, it will remain there anyway, like this Ukrainian open mindedness and this uh, appreciation of diversity and of, you know, democratic values, it, it will remain there. Of course, I think any sort of like post-war reconstruction and, uh, and also an effort to uh, help Ukraine rebuild. I don't know, so-called Marshall Plan, if there will be yeah. any anything similar uh, in cooperation with uh, other countries. It should include, of course, also a, a part of like widespread psychological support and psychological help uh, to, uh, you know, millions of Ukrainians who will be living with the uh, PTSD, with the, you know, the uh, war trauma. This, in this includes children, but this also includes adults, so not only soldiers, but many, many civilians who have witnessed, you know, know their loved ones being killed who maybe they themselves were 
victims of violence, also sexual violence. We will hear multiple reports of, of rape being committed uh, by Russian soldiers. So, uh, uh, you know, of course, the psychological uh, help and rehabilitation is something that will be needed. And, and uh, as I said at, at the very beginning, I think that, you know, if in the end of like all this, Ukraine becomes a part of the European Union, you know, this club of uh, uh, world's uh, democratic countries. There are many instruments in the EU, financial, but not only financial, we are speaking about, you know, the networking and, 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 you know, all the, all the connection possibilities uh, and the sharing of experience. So uh, uh, this would be, I think, also something uh, that would kind of, sure that Ukraine will remain, you know, yeah. this vibrant, democratic, uh, multi-cultural, uh, uh, diverse country. Okay. And uh, I can only say, I'm, I, I'm only sorry that you're probably more likely to join the European Union than we are. Um, Olena, uh, you wanted to come in on this. Yeah, very quickly, because like uh, now as a human rights defender, you know, I want to say that very shortly, that there is a difference between slave and free person. Like slaves, they afraid of their master. And this, at the same time, they don't like even imagine how they would live without this master. This is a difference, I'm afraid, with Russian society nowadays, with Ukrainian society. We uh, don't afraid... Putin. We don't afraid like to go out without weapon against the tanks, Russian tanks. Can you imagine that these people would afraid of, for example, their authorities in case if they undermine something, their rights no. or democracy? No way. No. So, um, someone's asked a question that uh, do you think? One second. Someone's asked a question that, saying, "Do you think you, the victory of Ukraine?" against Russia, whatever that means, will be a turning point for post-Soviet countries uh, in terms of the development of the different fields, journalism, medicine, uh, charity work, human rights defending, politics. Um, what, what can each, very briefly, because we're running out of time now, very briefly, I want to ask you, each one of you, what can, what can the rest of the post-Soviet world learn from what you've gone through? I'm speaking, I believe that they won't learn from our examples because you know uh, <laughs> you should pay your price for your freedom and we are everyone and we are everyone are just literally paying price for our freedom and for our democracy we all knew what happened in world war second and we all knew about holocaust and everything what happened then but you see the history is coming coming here again so i don't believe that the other countries um, will learn from our example anyone else yeah yeah, I would agree with that because I think if 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 we could, we would have avoided a lot more other conflicts, right? And I think what we're seeing is indeed in the post-Soviet space, uh, you know, re revolutions and democratization without blood is 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 impossible to shake off this level of oppression at at no cost. Unfortunately, is what we're we're proving. And history was not dead with the collapse of Soviet Union. Uh, Olga. 
I think that it very much will depend on what Russia uh, becomes as as a result of this war, because Russia is, you know, the the one country that has been hindering the uh, democratization and the rapprochement with the European Union, with of of other, uh, you know, many other post-Soviet states, uh, Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia. We've all seen the interference of Russia in our internal affairs. We've all seen the military aggression against our countries uh, on behalf of Russia. So I think if Ukraine manages to defeat Russia and somehow, I don't know, like whether, you know, we can really hope that Russia can be democratized in the near future, but at least if like Russia, you know, stops the attempt somehow, like if it's defeated to an extent that it stops interfering in other countries' affairs, stops, you know, preventing their development and their democratization, then I think there is a hope also for other post-Soviet states. And quickly, Olena. I'm very optimistic, uh, uh, definitely after the victory of Ukraine. First of all, uh, we could uh, learn from uh, the mistakes. For example, international organizations, it should be uh, transformations and reforms. Uh, They just demonstrated that they are very weak. And there are a lot of uh, challenges with this. Uh, A lot of challenges with uh, collective defense uh, system, and it could be uh, transformed. Uh, I hope we would have chance for this. And of course, international order, it should be uh, somehow uh, reconsidered, but in in the best way that it would work in the future. And security guarantees for Ukraine also would be possible. And I just want to give you all, maybe in a couple of sentences, um, the chance to say, what you what right now we've been talking about the future because that's what we wanted a future orientated discussion but what right now is the most important people for people like us active in uk civil society this is aspen uh, uk um what do you want what do you want the west to do maybe maybe i'll maybe i'll start with you elena but keep it brief so i can go to the others what what should we do now Definitely, there are practical things. Uh, We need uh, more pressure on uh, different governments. Uh, For example, yes, uh, many governments implemented sanctions, but uh, it's not just enough, you know, to announce about sanctions. You need to control that uh, there is no avoidance of the sanctions. And uh, the second thing, of course, weapon. Uh, We've been talking a lot about army, our army, our soldiers. They are doing like great job they're already proved to the whole world that that they're capable so please if they're capable we don't ask you to die for us but we are asking you to give us chance to fight with putin and to defeat the russian army and of course it's very important that you would like mean citizens you would check the information you would have critical mind about everything what you are uh, receiving you need to realize the real face of Russian army, of Russian regime. And you need to realize that it's not just the Putin. Those people who are keeping silent, looking at their war crimes and keeping silent in Russia, they have the same responsibility as their leaders. And I know that you are going to have soon discussion with Russian like opinion leaders or young leaders. That's uh, very important to ask them this question. Why these people are keeping silent? Let me ask Olga the same question, but briefly, please. Yeah, so please uh, go out to the streets, continue supporting Ukraine, put pressure on your government to provide more support, to deliver more weapons to Ukraine, to provide financial assistance, and of course to impose 
oil embargo on Russia. Yegor? Not repeating anything that everyone said, because I completely agree. But if you think about how you personally can support and, you know, you consider donating, do consider the wider support network that is required, not just the immediate humanitarian relief. And people have done an amazing job with the DSC and beyond. But consider the broader support network that will be needed from redevelopment funds to charities such as Tabletechki from Ole. There will be more needed. So think about that full chain um, and network that you could support. And finally, um, Olya. That's exactly what Igor told. I wouldn't repeat him. So I totally support his suggestion to support Tabletechki and any other activities which provide humanitarian relief and development aid for the future. Thank you. Now, I'm going to just do some wrapping up. But before I do, I want to say thank you to all uh, four of our guests and to you, the audience. Um, I hope I will see you in Kiev. I hope I will see you in a, a rebuilt Kiev. In fact, as soon as um, it is safe to go, I hope I will. we will all be there. Um, and one day, I hope we will see each other and certainly those of us who can travel there in a democratic Russia. Um, on that, as a follow-up to this webinar, this webinar, we're hosting a conversation with young Russian leaders on the 3rd of May. More info on that is on the Aspen UK website, which might be in the link chat as I speak. There it is from Amelia to everyone. If you want to know more about that conversation with the Russian, Russian young people. And on 25th of April, uh, Aspen UK is looking at the future of Afghanistan with panelists including Sana Safi and Shahazad Akbar discussing what the future holds for the Afghan people as the world continues to bear witness to the fallout of the US-UK withdrawal. And with that, I will say thank you to the Aspen Institute for inviting all of us. Thank you for the panelists for your time. Time is precious, but the more we spend time with each other, uh, the stronger we can become, especially those of us in outside uh, Ukraine right now, besieged by the tsunami of disinformation and propaganda. Um, I hope everyone who's been on the call can take away something positive from it. And please uh, go on the Aspen UK website and learn more about that organization from me uh, and from all our panelists. Thank you and uh, good evening. Thank you. Thank you for having us. A pleasure.